This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. If you have your Bibles, please take them out. If you need a Bible, you can shoot your hand up in the air. We have someone in the back who is poised and ready uh, to get a copy of the Bible into your hands this morning. We're going to be in the book of Judges this morning, so Judges chapter 10. He's poised and ready, but he's not looking, so there you go. <laughs> it's direct over there. Uh, we're going to be Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10 this morning. If you're new with us, uh, we, we've been in this series in the book of Judges, because this is typically what we do here at Christ Church, is we pick one book of the Bible, and we make our way through it systematically. We do this because we believe that the Bible has been inspired by God. Not only in what it says, but in how it says it. And so we want to study God's word in the context in which God inspired it to be written. This morning we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 10 of Judges and making our way all the way through chapter 12. Typically I'll read our entire portion of scripture that we'll be studying up front. But since this is such a lengthy portion of scripture... What I want to do this morning is I want to kind of read a few verses and then comment on them, read a few more and then comment on them, and we'll work through this lengthy section of Scripture in that way. But really, this whole section, starting in the end of chapter 10 all the way through the end of chapter 12, this whole section is bound together by one central theme. And the central theme of this part of the book of Judges is that ignorance is not always bliss. Ignorance is not always bliss. Now, sometimes ignorance can be bliss. So like for me, I enjoy eating sausage. And ignorance is bliss about how sausage is made. Like I don't even know that information. You know, I'm good. I'm good just to enjoy it. Um, If you do not follow the Philadelphia Eagles, then ignorance is bliss for you right now. You're enjoying life in a happy bubble as the rest of us are heartbroken over what should have and what could have been. And I envy you because I'm a diehard Eagles fan and sometimes I wish I wasn't. There are times where ignorance is bliss, but then there are times where ignorance is not bliss. There are times when ignorance can actually be very, very costly. One time I had an infection in my stomach due to a complication with my Crohn's disease. That infection caused me to go septic and my life was in danger. And I'm so grateful that my surgeon didn't say, hey, ignorance is bliss. We're just going to kind of cut you open and hope for the best. No, I'm very grateful that they were knowledgeable, and their knowledge saved my life. See, the higher the stakes, the more important that knowledge becomes. What we're going to see today is that there are some people who are engaging in high-stakes situations, but they're completely ignorant of God's Word. That They didn't understand the Word of God, even though they confessed to know Him. And their ignorance was not bliss. And so I want to be honest with you, this section of scripture that we're about to read is a heavy scripture. It's one of these scriptures that is given to us as a warning. This is a sobering text. But in many ways, this is not only just a warning. This is an invitation. I think about what God's word says in Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, through God's word, he invites us to experience the path of life, the fullness of joy, the eternal pleasure that can only be found in him. And so not only is this a warning to us not to be ignorant of what God says, this is an invitation to us to taste and see the goodness of what it means to come to know God in increasing ways through his word. And so if you like sermon titles, you can title this one, When Ignorance is Not Bliss. When Ignorance is Not Bliss. Let's start our journey through this section of Scripture by reading the context of chapters 11 and 12. So we'll start at the end of chapter 10. We'll pick up in verse 15. This is what God's Word says to us. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Amnites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead. 
And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped in Mitzpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He should be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Let's just pause this moment and ask God to bless this time as we make our way through a section of Scripture. So let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. I want to encourage you to actually pray for yourself and ask God to speak to you through what you're about to hear. And now please pray for me, because I need God's help. Please pray that I be strengthened to speak in a way that is clear and helpful to you and glorifying to Him. Guys, we come before your word today. I pray that you would give us humble spirits. I pray that we would hear what you are seeking to say through this inspired part of your word. With the same Holy Spirit that inspired these words to be written, illuminate them now to our hearts that we might see you. And in seeing you, we might be changed by you. We praise for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So just the context of what's going on here, the people of Israel have been living in slavery because they've chosen to serve the false gods of other nations. And so when those nations came to war against them, false gods can't do much to protect you. And so because all they had was false gods, these nations came in and took over them because there was no God to actually protect them. Now the people of Israel, what we see in verse 15, they confess that sin to the Lord. They confess the sin of worshiping false gods and they turn away from those false gods and put them away and they recommit themselves to worshiping the one and only true God. We looked at all of that last week. And we saw how God grew impatient over their misery. And we saw how what that means is that God could not bear to see them in their suffering anymore. His heart broke for their brokenness. And yet here's what we should expect to see at this point in the story. If you're familiar with the pattern of judges, what's been happening is that when God's people turn to the Lord, and God says, I'm going to rescue you, the next verse usually starts, and so God raised up so-and-so to be a judge for Israel. Now, when it says judge, it doesn't mean someone who's going to like pronounce judgment on them, someone who wears a black gown and bangs a gavel. No, it means a rescuer, a deliverer. That's typically been the pattern. It's been the people turn to God, God says, I'm going to save you, so God raises up a judge to go and save them. But that's not what happened in this passage, is it? These people turn to God, and we see that God's heart is broken for their brokenness. But before God can act, the leaders come up with their own plan. In verse 18, they're like, let's go find someone. Let's go find someone. If he'll fight for us, then we'll make him our leader. They did not wait for God to raise up a judge for them. Instead, they try to take matters into their own hands. And they're like, hey, if we can find someone who can deliver us, if he's strong enough to defeat these enemies, we will make him our leader. And so now, not only are they finding a judge for themselves, now they're actually appointing their own leader, which is also a role that was supposed to be reserved for God alone. Only God could say who was leader over his people, but here the people are choosing a leader for themselves. Now, on the one hand, it makes sense. I mean, if they could find someone who is strong enough to defeat their enemies, surely he would be a good leader because he could then protect them in the future from their enemies, right? And so it makes sense that they would want to find a leader based upon what this leader was able to do, based upon his abilities. But in God's eyes, it's not a person's abilities that qualifies them to lead. It's not what they can do. It is who they are in their character. If these people had followed God's word, if they brought themselves into submission to what God had said, then they would have known that for the Lord, the godliness of a leader is inseparable from their fittingness to lead. For the Lord, capability is never more important than character. But these people don't care about that. They, they just wanted to find someone who could give them what they wanted, no matter who that person was. Fair warning, it's going to lead to disaster. Because a lack of character always catches up with you and breaks things down. But these people didn't care about character, and they didn't wait for God's timing. Right? God, God had promised them this in his word in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 2 through 3. God said to them, return to the Lord your God, you and your children, 
and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. Right? God promised if you return to me, I will restore you. So in verse 16, they return to God. What they should have done at that point is then wait for God to restore them by raising up a deliverer for them. But they don't. They take things into their own hands, and in doing so, they willingly usurp God's role. And notice, there's no prayer to God. There's no seeking God's will. There's no asking God, God, lead us to the leader that you have for us. There's, there's, no, there's no trusting in God to guide them. No, they just go and do what they feel is right. And it's actually not hard to see why they felt like they need to act so urgently. Verse 17 says, the enemies had come to war against them. And so they were scared. No wonder they felt like they needed to act urgently. There was enemies that were right in front of them that were threatening them. But friends, decisions made out of fear are rarely good decisions. Be careful of letting your fear lead you to do things in your own way at the expense of obeying God and trusting that His way is always the right way. Don't allow your fear to compromise your convictions. But that's what these people were doing. These people were acting ignorantly of God. They weren't trying to do things his way. They wanted to do it their own way. And so they end up finding themselves a really bad judge. Let's pick up in chapter 11. It says, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. This guy Jephthah's story starts pretty tragically. His half-brothers drive him away from his home so that he couldn't get any of their father's inheritance. That's injustice. That is not at all what God prescribed in his law. But how Jephthah responds is by going out and rounding up what verse 3 says are worthless fellows. Now that phrase in the original Hebrew, which is what this book was written in, means something a little bit more than worthless. It means thieves or robbers or scoundrels. Commentator Kevin Younger helps us understand what this phrase means when he says, he attracted a band of outlaws, men who lived through robbery. Jephthah was an organized crime, a kind of underworld boss. See, Jephthah had been hurt by people. But what can so sadly happen sometimes is that hurt people turn around and hurt other people. And so Jephthah is acting out in his dysfunction, and he is attracting around himself a gang of thieves. That's who he is. He's, he's a crime boss. That's, that's the backstory of Jephthah. And on the one hand, if you want to go fight a battle, then, yeah, good idea. Go get a crime boss on your side. Go get someone who has a, a gang of thieves that know how to rob people and beat them up. These are strong people that knew how to exert their will on others. It seems like a smart strategy. These guys are the, the baddest guys in the land. They're going to be able to fight and win. Because they are so strong. But here's what the people are not understanding. Since when did God need strength to win a battle? Since when did God need our strength to bring about our deliverance? If these people had known their history, if they'd studied God's word, they would have known that's, that's never how God operates. They could have thought about how at this point their greatest deliverer was a man named Moses. Moses was the man that God raised up to free his people from their slavery in Egypt that they've been enslaved to for 400 years. God sent Moses to go speak to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the ruler of Egypt, so Pharaoh was the most powerful person who ruled the most powerful nation in the world. And God sent Moses to go speak to him. But we find out in Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, that Moses had a speech impediment. So the person God used to speak to the most powerful person in the world, the person God chose to speak was someone who had a hard time speaking. Since when does God need strength to bring about deliverance? Go back even before that and look at the story of Abraham. 
the father of the Israelite nation, the guy who started this whole thing. He and his wife Sarah were unable to conceive a child for over 80 years. But God used two people who couldn't have kids to miraculously give birth to a child through which the whole nation of Israel came into being. Friends, God doesn't need our strengths or our abilities to get things done. He's not limited by our limitations, but can use even our weaknesses to show off his power. But these people are acting ignorantly of this reality. And so they are looking for a person of strength. And they don't care all that much that he happens to be a gang leader. And so we go on to read in verse 4. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Do you, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we've come to you now. You may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzvah. Leaders come to Jephthah and they say, hey, will you fight for us? And Jephthah does what any self-respecting gang leader will do in that situation. He, he takes their need and he uses it to negotiate for more power for himself. And so he says, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll fight for you, no problem. You just have to make me your leader. And they're like, fine, we'll make you our leader. Now here's what we need to notice here. There's an irony taking place in, these passage, in this passage that, that, that the author of Judges is trying to draw our attention to. These people are doing things completely contrary to how God had told them to do things. They're acting ignorantly of God's word. And yet, did you notice how many times, it happens three times, the name of the Lord is mentioned. They're like, hey, if the, the Lord allows this, and if the Lord does this, we're doing this before the Lord. They're talking God talk, even though they're not doing things God's way. What we're meant to see there is that there is a, a hypocrisy taking place in these people. And I don't say that to point a finger at them. I say it to hold a mirror up to us. Friends, it is so easy to say, well, the Lord this and the Lord that, and I think the Lord is telling me to do this. But if our choices are not actually being formed by God's word, if our actions and decisions are being driven by what we think and not what God says, then we can say as much as we want, he's the Lord of our life. But the reality is, is we're living as Lord of our own lives. I think it is so easy, even for professing Christians, to become functional atheists, where we say we believe in God, we even feel that we believe in God, and yet God has very little to do with the actual decisions that we make in the everyday stuff of life. If we truly believed in God, friends, then the question we should always be asking is how does this decision, how does this choice, how does my life reflect God's priorities? But how often people are like, well, I'm just going to go do that. I'm just going to spend my time this way. I'm going to spend my money this way. And this will be what I'll do with my career. And I'm going to go out and do this thing. And I'm just going to interact this way. And we go through life mindlessly doing whatever we feel, whatever we want. And we sing on Sunday how Jesus is Lord of all. But we live Monday through Saturday as if we are Lord of all. I think what we see in the Israelites is what we can see totally in ourselves. These people said they followed the Lord. But they're living as if they were the Lord. And so listen, friends, we can say whatever we want about God, but what we need is to come to God's word and see what God says about himself. We cannot ask or even understand how our lives are lining up with God's priorities if we don't come to God's word and see what he says about what his priorities are. This, this book is meant to shape us. This book is meant to inform us. It is coming under the authority of God's word through which we show that he really is the Lord of our lives. But these people, they, they give God lip service, but their lives do not reflect that they follow God at all. And then Jephthah continues this pattern as he begins to make his first moves as a leader. This is his first move. This is what he does. We read in verse 12 and 13. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of Ammonites and said, What do you have against me? Do you come to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel, on coming up 
from Egypt took away my land from Arnon to the Jabbok and the Jordan. Now, now therefore, restore it peaceably. So what is Jephthah doing here? He's opening up communication with his enemies. Why do you want to fight us? They're like, well, you took our land, so you need to give it back, right? Jephthah then engages in a long argument in verses 14 through 18, 14 through 28, excuse me, 14 through 28. He gives a long argument about how Israel is actually in the right to own this land in the first place. It's a super long argument, so let me just summarize it for you. He really argues three things. First, he argues it was actually the Amorites' land that the Israelites took, not the Ammonites. Try to say that three times fast. It was the Israelites who took the land from the Amorites, not the Ammonites. I think I said that right. So basically what he's saying is, hey, your name was never on the, the deed, so back off, it was never yours to begin with. That's his first argument. His second argument is, we were simply defending ourselves. We weren't trying to take anybody's land. People came out to fight against us, and it's not our fault that we kind of wrecked shop and destroyed them, and therefore their land became ours. That's the second argument. His third argument is, well, go ask your God, Shamash. And if it's really your land, then Shamash will fight for you. We won't be able to win anyways, and you'll have it, and there you go. Let Shamash settle it. And so there's actually several problems with Jephthah's argument. First, his history is just flat out wrong, right? We can read the receipts on this. Go back and read the book of Joshua. See what happens when the Israelites came into the land. What Jephthah says is not what happens whatsoever. Um, and so his history is wrong. Second, his theology is wrong. By saying their God, Shamash, would give them the land if it's really theirs, he's giving credence to a God that didn't even exist. He's saying, he's showing that this pagan idea that that, that exists in their culture, this pagan idea was that each different land had different gods and and the way that these gods were all warring against each other and basically the strongest god wins. And that's how the world worked. That's what he's showing. But that's, as as someone who who knew God's word, that's not how we should have thought at all. He's speaking to these pagan people like he himself is a pagan. He is acting in ignorance according to their ignorance. He's not being shaped by God's word. Because as an Israelite, what should he have thought? What should he have known? He should have been, faced, he should have been, he should have been brought into his understanding as the most fundamental starting point. The most fundamental starting point for every Israelite, and for us as well, honestly, who continue in that tradition, because we are Christians who follow the whole Bible. Um, and so where he should have started, the fundamental starting point is the Shema. What's the Shema? Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Here, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. The Bible starts as its fundamental starting point is that there's not multiple gods. There's only one God. There's not different land gods. There's only one God. And this God exists and rules over all. If Jephthah had known the word of God, he would have known that, and he never would have taken the name of this false god, Chemosh, on his lips. And so his history is wrong. His theology is wrong. And his choice to even have this conversation and open up a dialogue in the first place is wrong. The Israelites were not supposed to negotiate with their enemies. Now God had told them what they were supposed to do with their enemies. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 16, God says, You shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. God had told them, he had commanded them, you got to destroy these pagan nations that are in your land. You need to drive them out. If you don't, they will lead you into sin. Now, we know from the beginning of the book of Judges that the Israelites did not stay true to that command. They allowed these pagan nations to continue to exist in their land. That's what had gotten them into all this trouble in the first place. And so Jephthah, what he should be doing here, he should not be negotiating. He should be eradicating. He should not be opening up lines of diplomacy. He should have been going to war. He should have been trying to fix the mistake of his forefathers. He should have been trying to make peace with people that God had said, you need to get them out of here. But how often this is what we can do. How often we can make peace with the very things that God says have no place in our lives. How often we can negotiate with our sin instead of eradicate our sin and the way that the Lord commands us. See, like these Israelites who are not supposed to allow these people to stay in their land, there are things that God has told us that are not to be part of our lives, that God says is not for our good. But when we think we we can negotiate with these things, 
when we think that we can allow certain sins to hang around just as long as they don't get too bad, then we wonder why we're not doing well spiritually. We'll never do well spiritually, friends, if we negotiate with things that God says we are to eradicate. All we'll do is strengthen that sin's hold on our lives, and it'll just get worse and worse and worse. And so Jephthah's not doing any of this God's way. But here's what's amazing. God still shows mercy to Jephthah and uses Jephthah to show mercy to his people. Jephthah's diplomacy fails. The king of the Ammonites is like, hey, we're coming for you. And Jephthah's like, okay, bring it on. And God uses Jephthah to defeat them and to free the Israelite people. Look at verse 29 of chapter 11. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you'll give the Ammonites into my hand, that whatever comes out the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I'll offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aor to the neighborhood of Mithna, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Karem, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Even though Jephthah is not a godly man, and even though he is not doing things in God's way, what we're seeing in these verses is that God is a God of grace. God is such a God of grace that he can even use our sin to bring about his redemptive purposes, which is not an excuse for us to sin, but it is a comfort that God is sovereign even over our sin. Verse 29 says that God's favor came upon Jephthah. Friends, that is grace. That is God deciding to be with Jephthah and to be good to Jephthah, not because Jephthah deserved it, but because God is just that merciful. God's spirit coming upon him, that is grace. And God is then strengthened by that spirit to go and defeat Israelites' enemies and win their freedom. Friends, this is a victory of grace. And yet, in this victory, there is a tragic flaw. You see, Jephthah did not understand that God is a God of grace. And so Jephthah thought he needed to bribe God in order to get God to give him victory. That's, that's how the, the gods of these false nations worked. And so again, Jephthah, because he did not know God's word, his thinking was informed by his culture. And so what his culture said is that, hey, if you want a God to be on your side, you need to offer them a burnt sacrifice. You need to make some kind of big promise to them in order to get them to come through for you. And so because Jephthah did not know God's word, he's thinking about God in a worldly way based upon his culture. And so he makes this promise, hey, whatever comes out of my house, I'm going to offer as a burnt offering to you in order for you to give me victory. But here's what we need to understand. Did Jephthah need to do anything to get God's spirit to come upon him and lead him to victory? No. Look again at your text. Verse 29, it says, without Jephthah doing anything, verse 29 says that God's spirit rested upon Jephthah. And that's in verse 31 that he promises to make a vow. And so the point is that the author is drawing attention to God's spirit was present before the vow was made. Jephthah didn't need to do nothing to get God to come through for him. But he didn't understand that. He thought the grace that God freely gave was something that he actually had to earn. Jephthah is trying to control God instead of trusting in the grace of God. He is treating God based upon what he thought God was like, not based upon who God had actually revealed himself to be. If he had read God's word, he would have understand that God has revealed himself in this word as a God who saves his people by grace. He would have been reminded of the Red Sea. He would have been reminded of the crossing of the Jordan. He would have been reminded of story after story of God graciously intervening and saving his people, not because of who they are, but even in spite of who they are. God, he, they would have seen God being sovereign and him graciously giving his people things they didn't deserve, but he freely chose to give by his grace. Jephthah could have known that God was with him without him needing to offer anything to God to be with him. But Jephthah is ignorant of this God of grace. And his ignorance costs him dearly. When he made this vow, like, hey, whatever comes out of my house, I will offer as a burnt offering to you. 
most likely he probably thought it would be an animal that came out of his house first because in most ancient Israelite homes, a lot of uh, their animals would be housed uh, on the bottom floor. And if you open a door, generally speaking, animals move faster than humans. Uh, if you come over to my house and we have not put our dogs away and you open our doors, I guarantee you my dogs will be the first to greet you. Um, one is about a six-pound fluffy thing, so I don't even know if that counts as a dog. Uh, you won't worry about her. But my 120-pound German Shepherd, you might be a little bit more concerned about him. Um, you can tell which one's the family dog and which one is my dog. But um, that's what Jephthah most likely thought, that an animal would come rushing out. But on the day he comes home, that is not who greets him. Look at verse 34. When Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, Behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. And you've become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. First thing that greeted Japheth when he came home was not the animal he anticipated, but the daughter that he dearly loved. Who was not only his daughter, she was also his only child. So Jephthah had made a vow they never should have made in the first place. And then when he saw what this vow was going to cause him to do, when he saw what this vow was going to cost him, Here's what he should have understood. Not only did he not need to make it, he should have understood that God would never want him to honor such a vow. Because God's word clearly says, many places, I'll give you one example, Deuteronomy 12.31, God's word says human sacrifices are an abomination to him. God never would have wanted Jephthah to offer his daughter as a burnt sacrifice. God would have views that as an abomination but because Jephthah's thinking about God is not actually shaped by what God says, but rather instead shaped by what he thinks God is like, because his understanding of God is shaped by the culture, not by God's word, in his culture, human sacrifice was coming. And so for Jephthah, this would not have been, it would have been sad, it would have been hard, it would have been something that he still had to do. Because he's someone who is shaped more by the world he was in instead of the word of God that he should have been in. And so what he does is he allows his daughter to go mourn for her life for two months. The text goes on to say she mourned for her virginity, which means that she was mourning not only that she was going to die, but since she is Jephthah's only child, and since she then had no children of her own, this means that her fa the family would die out as well. Which in that culture would have been seen as a great, great shame. And as a sign of God's judgment. She mourns. And then verse 39 says, At the end of the two months, at the end of the time of her mourning, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. Jephthah's sinful vow that he never should have made in the first place ends up costing him far more tragically more than he ever thought it would. And should we wonder how God feels about this? We read at the end of verse 30, 39, she had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gilead four days in the year. God actually had instituted as a, as a, as a custom that his people were to celebrate from that point on. What happened today is horrific. Lament this. Weep over this. Friends, we're meant to see that this is a great tragedy. Jephthah had made what he thought was an innocent vow. But that little sin, because he was doing something God did not tell him to do, that little sin ended up costing him more than he thought it would. Because that's what sin does. Sin always takes more than we think it will. And one of the things that really strikes me in this whole passage is how Jephthah is doing all these things by himself. Here's what you never see Jephthah do. You never see Jephthah asking anyone for advice. 
You never see him asking for counsel. You never see anyone in his life who knew him and could check him. No, he's making decisions by himself. He's making plans by himself. He's making stupid vows by himself. He's just living in his own world. In other words, Jephthah is acting, let's be honest, like an American. Right in America, right? I do things my own way. I don't need anyone. Don't tread on me. I don't need anyone to tell me to do what to do. These are my rights, right? We live individualistically and do things our own way. We chart our own course. I'm going to do what I want to do and what I think is right. I'm going to listen to my heart. When it's calling to you, right? So that's what we do. This is how we live. This is the air that we breathe. But you know what God calls this individualistic, American way of thinking? You know what God calls that according to his word? He calls it foolishness. He calls it foolishness. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. Jephthah thought, He was doing something right in making this vow. But it was right only in his own eyes. And so it ended up leading to disaster. How often for us we can do things that seem right to us in a moment. But actually end up leading to things we never saw coming. But we might have if we had good friends in our lives who could speak to us and check us. Listen friends, one of the blessings that God wants to give us is godly people who can speak God's word true to us. Not only do we need to understand God's word for ourselves, we absolutely do, but we also need people in our lives who also know God's word and also love the Lord and can counsel us and help us and encourage us to follow the Lord. Because none of us know everything, and we're all prone to self-deception. And so we need people in our life who can be like, yeah, I'm not so sure that's actually a great decision. We need people in our life who can be like, you know what? You seem to be really driven out of fear with all this. I wonder if, like, is the peace of God really ruling your heart? Someone say, like, hey, man, you know, you're choosing to move over there. Like, you don't even know if there's a church in the area. You don't really know how you're going to do spiritually. But, like, you're making a choice based upon, like, I don't know, you want a bigger backyard. Is that really how you think God would have your priorities go? Like, we need people in our lives who can speak these types of things into our hearts. I am so grateful, I'm so deeply grateful that there are a group of men that I have in this church who I meet with on a weekly basis, two other guys, two other brothers who just speak into my life, who I can say, hey, here's what's going on, here's why I'm struggling, here's why I'm encouraged, here's just my life, here's my heart, speak to me. I don't know where I'd be without that. I'm so deeply grateful that I have people who know me and therefore can encourage me, they can correct me, and they can counsel me from God's word. I'm so grateful for that because I do not want my life to be shaped by my own thinking. That terrifies me. I need trusted people. And friends, I want to suggest to you that God's word says you need trusted people as well. This is something that we as a church are placing an emphasis on this year. We really want to encourage everyone to consider who are the two to three people you have in your life who know you. Who know you. And who can speak into your life. Who are the two or three people of your same gender? Probably the best place to think about that is in your community group. They can help you more regularly in a personal way think about what it means to follow Jesus on a daily. If you're new with us, you don't know what community groups are. Um, I don't mean to be speaking in like insider language. Community groups are just small groups of people that we have here at the church that get together on a bi-weekly basis. We share a meal, talk more about God's word. So much of our church life is structured around these community groups. It's where we really go deeper in relationship together. And so really, I just want to encourage you, if you don't have people in your community group, if you don't have two or three, if you're, if you're a woman, two or three sisters, if you're a man, two or three brothers, if you don't have these people in your life, I want to encourage you to find them. Find them. And if you're not regularly part of a community group, I want to challenge you to be part of one. Be part of one. Get connected in a deeper way. Listen, coming together on Sunday is fantastic. It's great. We're called to put ourselves under the preaching of God's word. This is important. But this is all you got? Friends, I'm concerned for the trajectory of where you're going. We need more than just an hour and a half on a Sunday. We need people who can walk with us Monday through Saturday and help us follow God. Because, man, yeah, it's easy to follow the Lord right now when we're hearing his word preached. But what do we do on Tuesday afternoon when we need some help? Right? We need people regularly in our lives. And I just want to encourage you to consider what it would look like to have those people regularly in your lives if you don't yet have them. I was talking with one of my seminary professors recently about a, uh, just another scandal that broke of another church being decimated because their pastor had, had fallen into moral failure. This stuff freaks me out. Um, 
And so I asked my professor, I was like, man, you know, you've been, you've been teaching pastors now for 50 years. <laughs> Is there a common thread you see in these things? Because this terrifies me. I'm sure that guy didn't see it coming. And yet, I can't imagine ending up like that. I don't. I don't want to end up like that. I want to make it to the end. I want to love my wife with all my heart until she passes or I go home. I want to serve the church faithfully with integrity until the Lord brings me back to be with him. And so I just asked him, like, what's, what's the theme here? Give me some help. He said, by far the most common theme of leaders who fail is they isolate themselves. Guys who fall in big ways, he said, I'll never forget it, guys who fall in big ways were never really known intimately in small ways by the people around them. And so he just exhorted me, if you want to follow God for the long haul, fight to keep people in your life who can check you, who can speak truth into you, because if not, you will go the way of a fool. Jephthah had no one in his life to check him. And so not only did he wreck himself, but he hurt the person he cared about the most. Because our sin never stays contained just to us. It will eventually always cost and hurt the people around us. And so he ends up taking the life of his own daughter. And then the bloodshed doesn't end there. Let's turn to the last section here in chapter 12. It says, The men of Ephraim were called to arms. They crossed to Zephon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. Jephthah said, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. When I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my own life into my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gidelites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. It goes on to say just all the different ways that they fought them. And it closes by saying this in verse 6. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Here's what you need to understand. Ephraim was not a foreign nation. Ephraim was another tribe of Israel. The people that Jephthah is fighting here is not his enemies. The people he's fighting are the people who are supposed to be his brothers. They came to him and said, hey, why don't you take us to fight with you? We're upset at you. We're going to burn your house. And now Jephthah, who had been so good at negotiating with people he shouldn't have, decides to not negotiate with the people that he should have. And so instead of de-escalating the situation, he takes it up a thousand notches. He's like, oh, you're going to come at me? I'm going to kill 42,000 of you. And the civil war breaks out in the Israelite people. And so here's what we're seeing, friends. All the way back in chapter 10, God saw his people's misery. He saw how they were suffering under their enemies. He then saves them from their enemies, but now what's happened? They're becoming their own worst enemies. Do you know who didn't kill 42,000 Israelites? The Ammonites. These people are being worse than their former oppressors. What we're meant to see here is that there is no progress being made. There's just another cycle of sin being repeated. Because that's what happens when God's word is not what governs us. We will never make progress if God's word is, what, is not what governs us because, because we'll just continue to, to, to repeat our mistakes. Friends, ignorance is not bliss. What we need, what you need, what I need is to increasingly be governed more and more by what God says because it is his word that leads us on the path of life. It is his word that breaks our sinful cycles. Left unto ourselves, we will always stay stuck. And so we need something outside of ourselves. We need a wisdom that does not come from us, but is outside of us and can rewire us. And that's what God gives us through his word. His word is meant to rescue us from our ignorance that so often hurts us. God's word is meant to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path that leads us into the wholeness and thriving that God wants for us. 
not only through giving us practical advice, although the Bible is certainly full of plenty of practical advice, but ultimately because this book reveals to us the nature of God. This isn't a book that we come to just for information, to win some Bible trivia contests, and to know what the different 12 tribes of Israelite are. Who cares? Here's why it matters. Here's why this information matters. Because through this information, God's given us a greater revelation of who he is. God, who could have chosen to reveal himself and write out a message in the sky. God, who could have spoken from the heavens, instead has chosen to reveal himself through his word. This is where we meet with the Lord as we come and open up his word and see what it has to say about who he is. And as we open God's word and see who he is, friends, this is what we see. This is what these people miss. God is a God of grace. It's not only are they ignorant of God's word, but their ignorance of God's word led them to be ignorant of who God really is. God is a God of grace. If the Israelites had trusted in God's grace, they never would have made a criminal their leader but they would have trusted God to provide what they needed when they needed it. If Jephthah had trusted in God's grace, he never would have made this unnecessary and costly vow, but he would have trusted God to love him and bless him and lead him to victory. The Israelites started a whole civil war amongst themselves. Why? Because they had no grace for each other because they were ignorant of the grace they have been given by God. Friends, ignorance of God's word is not bliss because it robs us of the opportunity to be reminded of the promise of who God is. He is the God of grace. These Israelites had plenty to look back on in their sacred scriptures to show them that God is a God of grace. And friends, let's be honest, we have even more. Because not only do we have the first five books of the Bible that these Israelites would have had access to at this point, but we have the whole story. We have all 66 books of the Bible, and we have Jesus who said this about the Bible. In John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Friends, the word of God is meant to lead us deeper into relationship with Jesus because he is the word of God made flesh. All of the word of God is meant to point to the word of God who's made flesh. All the Bible is about Jesus. Every single page is shouting his name. And Jesus shows us the grace of God embodied, right? It is Jesus who shows us that we do not have to make sacrifices to earn God's love. It's Jesus who shows us that he himself is the sacrifice, who shows us God's love by dying in our place on the cross, taking what our sins deserve so that we could then get the righteousness and forgiveness that he had earned and we can be washed and welcomed by God forever as his beloved children. It is Jesus who shows us that not only are we saved by grace, we are sustained by grace. He will not leave us now. No, if God did not spare his own son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all that we need? Friends, we don't go through life alone. We go through life with the Lord. His grace not only saves us, his grace sustains us and makes sure that we will get to the end And so we might face incredible challenges in this life. We might face things that seem and feel like enemies. As fearsome enemies as these Ammonites were for Israel. We might face relationships that seem broken beyond repair. We might face hurts that are so deep we're not sure how they can heal. We might face sicknesses that just won't go away. We might face unfair bosses or unfair teachers or unjust situations or challenges that exist in our families. Friends, we might and we will face our own sin. And let's be honest, that's the worst thing that we have in our lives because it's our sin that can so often just leave us feeling hopeless and helpless. We can have all kinds of things in our lives that are like enemies and they want to terrify us. But friends, the enemies that we see around us should never lead us to doubt the God of grace who is with us. For anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, God's grace rests on your life. And whether it's in this life or the next life, he's got victory coming for you in Christ. Because we know the end of the story. The end of the story is that in Jesus, all things will be made new. 
then to the story is that God's promises in Jesus will all come true. Listen, friends, your sickness will not be the end of your story. Your injustices that you've experienced will not be the end of your story. Being wronged and being hurt will not be the end of your story. Even your own sin and failures will not be the end of your story. No, if you have placed your faith in Christ, then I don't know what you're going through, but I know how your story ends. Your story ends with this glorious fact that in Jesus, grace wins. Grace wins. This is where we're going. This is what God wants us to see. Oh, friends, how, how easy it is to go through life. And all the scary things happen around us. And the scary things we can see in our own mirrors. And all we go through in life is just focusing on our enemies. Forgetting that we've been promised a Savior. We have a God of grace. And there is sweet rest to be found in reading God's Word and seeing it point to Jesus, the Word, who shows us the grace of God. In other words, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus and just to take Him at His Word, just to rest upon His promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Friends, there is rest and peace and comfort to be found in trusting that God is a God of grace. And we are a people who are so prone to forget that. And so God wrote down his word so that we can have a place that we come to again and again and again. So that our lives would not be shaped by what we see in the world around us. But instead we'd be shaped and formed by the word of God that he's given to us. We need to come to God's word again and again and again. So that we can be reminded again and again and again of who God is really is. He is the God of grace. Ignorance of God's word is not bliss, but there is life to be found as we come to his word and meet with Jesus, the word of God made flesh. Or to give Jesus the word, to give him the final word, as he says in John chapter 8, verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Let's bow our heads in order of prayer.